Hello and welcome to The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies in modern. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the one and only Shane Beeps. Stan, what is up, my dude? How are you? I'm great, man. Did you notice a little something different about me? Mm, do you have something like a mustache? I have something like a mustache. So does Zach, though. Eh. <laughs> My hair is blonde. Yeah, his is blonde. It does not come in clearly, but it is there, and you can touch it next time I see you. In fact, I want you to. Oh, I can't wait. His blonde stash blends in with his blonde porcelain skin. <laughs> they call me the Alabaster Boy for a reason. I think this is a good opportunity to introduce our Alabaster Boy, Zach Colham. It's me, shiny and porcelain. Oh, you're mixing up the order. How weird. I know. Shooting from the hip, that's what I do best. Last but not least, also with us here in Chicago, the godfather, Dave Harbarger. Am I last this week because I'm the least prepared for this episode? Did I get get demoted? Is that what just happened? The listeners didn't have to know. We could have pretended we were super prepared, or at least you were. Well, there's no covering up that. There's no covering up my silence. Bye, everybody. You're right. No more lies. Yeah. On this week's episode, we look at the results of SCG Cleveland and the most recent MTGO Modern Challenge. Then in our dive down, we look at some of the strongest cards that haven't made it into Modern yet and discuss what keeps them from earning a place in the format. Finally, in the wind down, we have a super exciting announcement that many of you have been asking about. But first, some housekeeping. Before we get into this week's show, we want to issue a correction. On last week's episode, I accidentally cited Shahar Senhar as the guest of a recent episode of MTG Grindcast, when in fact the guest was Zan Syed. I apologize for the mix-up. We love Zan and felt it was important to clear that up. Also, this week, more thanks are in order. We want to give a shout-out to Wesley1, Magno333, Lonnie1, Joe Branna, Kay Zalewski, and Red T-Rex. Thank you all for leaving us some very friendly reviews. We appreciate you. Finally, with all that out of the way, let's pass it over to Zach at the news desk with this week's breakdown. Yeah, so this week we're talking about the SCG Open in Cleveland that was modern, as well as a MTGO Modern Challenge. My so hometown. Think, yeah. Yeah, the, the land. Shane's hometown. Motor City, right? Yeah, exactly. The <laughs> motor, motor City, Cleveland. Well, well-known <laughs> Motor City. <laughs> Fun fact, trivia fact about Stanislav, born in Ukraine, turned one in Cleveland. Well, you you were there when we were uh, 12, probably. So, uh, uh, 30 years old, I think I was when you turned one. <laughs> Cleveland Heights! <laughs> still nice. I heard that the statue of you is still up there looking good and everything. The, a the bird never baby. poops on that statue. Yep. Unless it's a phoenix. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, none of us could go to this event, but we did get to watch it. Yeah, there was coverage, which is always fun, right? Even if you get to you know watch it on the Wayback Machine and not when it's happening. Yeah. So we're going to go over the day two breakdown real quick and just give some numbers for decks that posted over four results. The most represented deck was Is It Phoenix with 14 places or 20.6%. Humans had five decks. Amy the Titan had five decks. Mono Green Tron, five decks. And then Grixis Death Shadow closing it out with four. So Is It Phoenix, a little burb that could... This Dark Horse deck is here with 14 spots. Is this the real deal, guys? Or is this sort of, you know, one of those fads? I'm not convinced. (laughs) 
Yeah, just it's maintaining its place at 20 plus percent of day twos from weekend to weekend. Do you want to? So there were 14 of those. You said that was 20 percent. What does that mean? There was like 80 decks, 70 decks. So that means there were about 70 decks in day two. Yeah, the day twos are pretty small on the SEGs. That's amazing that there was nothing else that was above five. Yeah, absolutely. Out of 70. Yeah, humans, Titan, and Tron all tied for five each, and then is it Phoenix with fourteen? And then when you take a look at the the like the long tail of the meta, there's a ton of decks at three, two, and then there's like thirteen decks at one that made it in, which is is kind of mm-hmm. cool to see. I w- I will say this is the first tournament that I feel like I've seen in a while where the size of the is it Phoenix pool in day two was the same size as the singleton deck pool in day two so there were as many single decks as there were uh in the is it phoenix bucket plus or minus one yeah your contention that the field is at least the most popular deck day two is no longer the case at this scg open correct yeah that's why i brought that up from last week yeah What's interesting a little bit, perhaps, is if you combine the Golgari midrange and the Jund, which I know they're not the same deck, but they kind of operate on the same strategic axis. Um, there's six of those, so there's three Golgari midrange, three Jund. Uh, that puts it at six. That would be the second most played deck if you want to consider just sort of black green midrange in there. Also, there's an Ab- Obzon midrange, so that puts it at seven. That's an interesting point. I mean, that's a lot of midrange suddenly appearing, at least as far as what we've seen recently. Yeah, what's yeah, that I mean, also? Oh, go ahead, Zach. People like to play the deck, and it's a, a deck that I think that really rewards meta knowledge and deck mastery just because of how thin the margins can be. So I think for a big uh, a big event like this, you see a lot of people bringing their tuned brews to it. Yeah, but just another indication the metagame is not super healthy, right? I mean, we can't continually have a deck at 20 plus percent in day two over and over and over again. Yeah, I mean, do you guys want to talk about this really quick right now, or do you want to wait until after we do the top eight to talk about is it to do our is it Phoenix alarmist takes <laughs> week fifteen every week? We, what we will must. we talk about when this deck no longer exists? Dredge. Will the podcast still retire. exist? Yeah, no, we retire. We we rest on our laurels and move to an island. We're going out on top, just like is it Phoenix. <laughs> episode 500 of the dive down uh the is it phoenix anniversary tour 10 years in this deck's still here funeral for a friend well i i have one take to sure. go with this if i that i'll just start and uh you know we talked about this a bunch of times i'm just going to keep it really short and that is if i was a pro or someone who had queued for the mythic championship in london i would start looking for another deck you think it's that short-lived I think that uh, Wizards has a habit of banning the best deck in Modern right before Modern Pro Tours. It's happened yeah. a couple times. You know, when Ross Mer- Merriam was on yeah, uh, a couple weeks ago, he mentioned that this had happened to him twice before. He was a pod player, and then he was also a twin player. Um, I hate to say it, Ross, but uh, I think you might be in for another ban just before the, the Pro Tour this time, too. I guess if it gets banned, we get Ross on for an emergency podcast, though, right? So that's a little bit of a win for us. <laughs> I mean, there are two more GPs. Next weekend's GP Sao Paulo. The weekend after that is GP Yokohama. And then we have the MC London, right? So, man, they're getting down to the wire. Like you said, Dave, it's either going to be an emergency ban or maybe they're really hoping against hope that something happens in Cleveland or Sao Paulo, but they couldn't do something like six days before, could they? they that's wait. just gonna that's just gonna wipe out weeks of tuning. 
So when when was uh, Splinter Twin banned actually back in 2016? That was something like three weeks before, I think, when Oath of, Pro Tour Oath of the Gatewatch, and it was banned during the normal banned and restricted announcement that happened like three weeks before that. I don't think they're going to ban anything. I think they're going to count on the stress test from the MC to see what that does to the format, and I think they're just trying to stay patient for Modern Horizons because they're betting on that being a big enough impact on Modern. That's where my money's at. It's just so far off. Who knows? I, I think that's the rational take. But uh, yeah. I don't know. People they, don't come here for that. They do stuff to to uh, upend these modern pro tours sometimes to keep the format, quote unquote, fresh. And so we'll see. You know, I don't think it would be the worst outcome ever to see a bunch of really good people play. Is it Phoenix to, you know, to completion in the Mythic Championship? Because I like the deck. I think you think I think you see more people try to level two other players anyway. Right. So, so people are going to bring is it Phoenix as like the quote unquote best deck in the room. And you're going to see people, you know, these pros are going to level two that deck and then maybe even level three that deck. They're going to try to, you know, beat is it Phoenix and people are going to be like, okay, well, if they're bringing, let's say green Tron, what am I going to bring to beat green Tron? And I think that may make for a really interesting story or. The worst case scenario is we see the same exact metagame we have been seeing. We see 20% Izzard Phoenix in the day two of the Pro Tour. And, you know, it just cements itself as super consistent and super good in the hands of these great players. So just to break it down, level one is bringing the best deck in the format. Level two is bringing the deck that beats that deck. Mm -hmm. Level three is bringing the decks that beat the deck that beat the deck. Yes. Yep. And level four is bringing a transformational sideboard that turns into Is It Phoenix? <laughs> Maybe. It's changing your entire deck between rounds. <laughs> yeah, there we go. It's tweaking every round. Tweak your 75 is level four. <laughs> and level five is using one of your old standard decks because you don't actually have anything that's competitive and modern. Hmm. It's sneaking cards in from your, uh, your draft decks. <laughs> don't do that. Let's talk about the top eight. Because Is It Phoenix only appeared in two of the eight slots. Oh, yeah, oh, sorry. It wow. didn't win, but it only appeared in two of the eight slots. <laughs> what a reasonable take. I mean, it had as much representation in the top eight as Amulet Titan. So, problem yeah, that's solved, fair. right? So, yeah, well, let's uh, break this down. We'll just go deck by deck and give our takes on it as we go down. So, to start it off, we have Amulet Titan, which was uh, driven by Sam Lawrence, and this had sort of a Hive Titan build to it, running Hive Mind. Hive Titan is back, and I, I love that deck. We talked about it on episode 10 when we were going Primeval Titan decks, and I just think that Hive Mind is a very fun, very goofy card that a lot of decks don't have a main board answer to. One of the things that I found really fun about the Amulet Titan narrative from this weekend is that people often refer to this strategy as one that evolves week to week. And they often talk about the Amulet Titan Discord as being this tight-knit community that's always up on the metagame. So I'm pretty curious to see how the deck evolves moving forward. Whether it sticks to Hive Mind or whether they start to do even new level 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 things. Amulet's a great deck, and those, those people who love it are probably doing great with it. Watching Edgar on stream play it against Austin Collins was amazing, because the the lines of play that take me like 10 minutes to figure out, he was just doing in very intuitively on camera. I was super impressed with how he pilots that deck, and he's one of the foremost thinkers of that strategy. Moving on to second place, we have a particularly spicy, interesting brew that I think we're going to pick apart for a little bit. We have Esper Control, 
which was driven by Zach Allen. So this is looking a little bit like a blue-white control list, but with an interesting black package. I don't know if, Stan, you want to take this one. Sure. I I mean, the similarities it has to blue-white control are some number of Jace, Teferi, Snapcaster, Path, Supreme Verdict. I mean, I guess it has tons of similarities to (laughs) blue-white. The similarities are all the core cards. (laughs) But I guess it may be more interesting to look at why it's playing black, which are... One, Kaya Orzov Usurper. Three, Main Deck Fatal Push. The Namesake, three, Esper Charm. As well as one Cast Down, three, Nihil Spellbomb. And uh, it's got a Creeping Tar Pit in uh, the land base. Yeah. So if you had told me before this day, or if you you had talked to me before now about Esper Charm, I would put it on the list that we're going to talk about later. Me too, Zach. Yeah, that are so close to being there, but don't have a home, but three Esper Charm main is a high number. I mean, let's talk about Esper Charm for a second. So people who aren't familiar with it, it is one white, one blue, one black, and it's a modal card, and the modes are choose one, destroy target enchantment, draw two cards, or target player discards two cards, at instant speed, which is the the real killer there, because instant speed discard of one card is pretty good. At two cards, it feels kind of nuts. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of those things where stopping on someone's draw step in a game and making them go empty-handed is like a high-level move that most people will just go, oh, okay, uh, untap, pass, your go. Yeah. So do you, are you guys familiar with a little card called Coligan's Command? Never heard of it. Never heard of it. So Coligan's Command is a card that people love to play because it is almost always a two for one, right? And it's very easy to make that happen. It's only two colored mana and and one colorless, one generic. But um, Esper Charm, I think part of the reason it's powerful as well is because it is a guaranteed two for one every time you play it, right? Whether you point it at somebody else to get rid of their cards, point it at yourself to be able to draw two cards i mean destroy target enchantment is just sort of like some side utility that maybe comes in handy but it's really all about the draw two discard two sure i think we've actually talked about recently how a lot of decks don't have answers to enchantments even in the side so having a main deck answer right there just is like you have the modality of it and just most of the time it's you're accelerating you're getting rid of opponents cards but there'll be a time where you see a blood moon and you can float the mana, or you yeah. see a Pyromaster's Ascension, and you go, no. And just having that little bit of option is so huge, because so many decks don't. I think that's a great point, honestly, about a deck, uh, about this type of deck against Blood Moon, specifically. Having having something that is no downside to having the main deck to be able to float mana against Blood Moon and take care of it. I think that's a really mm-hmm. good point, that maybe there is some utility to that first mode as well. Yeah, one of the other things that I like about this version compared to Blue-White is that it can run for Snapcaster Mage. Five mana to snap an Esper Charm doesn't seem that hard either. No way. In a control deck, it should be easy to get up to five mana. Exactly. It's easier to cast than even a Cruel Ultimatum. Tasty, tasty ultimatums. So, guys, I feel kind of bad going in here and just trying to be you know, negative Nancy about someone who finished second place of this tournament. But this mana base, I cannot support it. Like I mean, I'm not. I'm trying not to be results oriented here, right? So look at let's look at the spells this deck is trying to cast, right? So you don't necessarily need to cast your supreme verdict on turn four, but you frequently want to. You don't necessarily need to be able to cast your cryptic command on turn four, but you frequently want to. So we have a double white and a blue casting cost on the supreme verdict. We have a triple blue requirement on the cryptic command. So 
this is a super huge strain on the mana. If you look back at some of like the Frank Carson articles, he suggests things along the lines of like 18 white sources to be able to cast a Supreme Verdict on turn four. I believe there are 14 white sources in here. This is not counting Field of Ruins, which I don't think is really positive mana fixing necessarily. And then you want 22 blue sources to cast a Cryptic on turn four. And there are 18 blue sources in this deck, right? So I'm just saying that the math and the mana base are not aligning super positively in my opinion here. I don't think the control package is as time intensive as you're suggesting because early game path to exile early game fatal push even negate or logic knot can buy you time until you're getting to the situation where you need to cast supreme verdict and i think this has enough early game removal that you're able to basically hold off until you have the mana for supreme verdict more in the mid game to compound on what stan's saying i think that you're right in that it's they're not going to be casting Cryptic Command on turn four a whole lot, but that's a concession you make when you play Esper Charm because you want to be able to play it. Like I said, like if you need to float mana for Blood Moon, you need to float mana for Blood Moon and do it. So I think you trade off the consistent turn four Cryptic for a more consistent Esper Charm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is hard for me to render judgment until I actually try this deck. I will say decks like this, like Jeskai Control and... You know, I'm assuming from looking at the mana base on this because it does feel similar to the mana base for Jeskai Control. They do have mana problems. Like yeah. I think that's just a true thing, and it's one of those things that makes the decks vulnerable in in certain meta games as well. So yeah, I you know I think it's tough to say. I think you have a good point, Shane, in saying hey this this mana base seems a little stretched, but um, maybe at this time at this moment in time it was able to sort of um, deal with it. Yeah. And we'll see, especially given the fact that it has a little bit of main deck resiliency to Blood Moon. So Zach Allen, for those of you who don't know, was the former co-host of Turn 1 Thoughtseize. He recently left that show. Still a very successful modern player, though. I don't want to basically take away from this accomplishment. But I do wonder, how much success do you guys think that a deck like this got from the fact that no one knew how to play against it? since it's a brew, essentially. Oh, I mean, that's huge, right? Like, that's sort of a big thing. If you peg your opponent on being as blue-white control, then all of a sudden they have a black package. I think that's big. I think it's just got a, a more uh, disruptive way to get a two-for-one than people were anticipating. So yeah, Esper Charm is a surprise. I think as soon as you saw someone play a Swamp, you would assume they're running Fatal Push. So yeah. I, I think that it's pro I think it's mostly due to the skill of the pilot and the tuning yeah. and less due to the surprise factor. And maybe just the fact that, Hey, you know, we found a way to do a three mana two for one in blue, white control instead of a four mana two for one out of, you know, a uh, hieroglyphic illumination or something like that, which is a card I really like playing, but you know, this one is a little bit more aggressive where it makes people get rid of their resources. I think it was really the fear factor of his like fully foiled out, as with expeditions and to foil to fairies and foil unhinged lands that really put people in their place yeah if you want to get more wins in modern just buy more expensive cards or at least more expensive versions of the cards you already have oh i mean that's what i did right you have to rebuy your deck but shiny and that's how you know you're good at modern congrats zach allen this was it was fun to watch him pilot this deck and that game three was a little disappointing because he basically couldn't get the land he needed but so it goes, right? He basically put up a very impressive finish with a pretty rogue strategy. 
the, the last thing I would say before we get off this deck is that while the quarterfinals were play, being played, I went on um, a certain website and bought two Kayas and had them sent to me. So now I will, I will also sleeve up this deck and play it in the coming weeks. Yeah, I definitely saw this deck and basically did the exact same thing. And then my co-host Zach talked me off the ledge and reminded me that I'm the player who should never be playing Control again. So thank you, Zach, for saving me, like, I don't know, 50 bucks. We have merch about how you shouldn't make these decisions. And if you're a player who would like to never play Control again, please send us a, a tweet and we'll send you a button. While supplies last. Yep. Before we move on, um, real quick... Esper control. Sleeve it. Believe it. Heave it. Sleeve it. I'm sleeving it. For sure. Stan? I obviously want to sleeve it. I'm so close. I'm so close. I might just borrow Dave's cards because he's never going to use them. So close! I just use my usual punt on these and just say, I don't play decks like this in the first place, so... I mean, it's a cool deck. I don't. I, don't, I think that this is the kind of deck that the mana inconsistencies hurt it over the long run. Yeah, I'll watch Dave sleeve it i'll believe dave will sleeve it even you'll you'll watch me as i put uh results of modern leagues into our chat where i say it just took me five hours to play this league but it was so fun (laughs) one at three seconds my wife loves it that's a real question dave is is this worth the loss of wife equity (laughs) (laughs) that is such a complicated question we should save that for a wind down sometime (laughs) Magic Online and your spefs. So in third, we have the reappearance of Amulet Titan, which is piloted by Matthew Dilks. This one also running the Hive Minds. Yeah, man, this Amulet Titan Discord is the stuff of legends, and I think they almost treat it like one massive team. It's kind of, as an oh, outsider nice. looking in, that's that kind of what nice. it feels like. Moving on to a very familiar face in Blue Red Phoenix. This is piloted by James Mangies. Mangies? Mangi. Manger. We're going to go with the first one. <laughs> Homme <Man>. manger. <laughs> I think the G is silent. Yeah. Uh, next, we have a humans list by Liam Daly. This one was running one Anafenza main, which I think is becoming more stock these days. I've been even seeing one main, one side. This yeah. one had none on the side and instead run a uh, Kemball, which is also a very good card. Sure. Six, another Is It Phoenix deck. Once again, nothing too out of the wild. Pretty stock. And then in seventh, we have the Spicy Meatball that is Four Color Shadow run by Alex Bastecki. I love this deck. I love this deck so much. I've been a fan of aggro decks since I started Magic way back when, and this deck is, I think it's the aggro deck. You've been a fan of aggro decks? You're like, you're the prison boy. You're the warden. Oh, and uh, well, this episode, I was the pretty porcelain boy, so maybe you remember (laughs) that. The porcelain prince. Fair. But no, I, I I do love aggro decks. I mean, I run burn. We've talked about that before. Oh, I just true. I like locking people out more than going fast. But I also want to go fast. You know what's weird to me is that this deck is not running something like um, surgical extraction just for free because it could lower its life and fill the graveyard for become immense, which is like a great way for aggro decks to to kill people. And instead, it's choosing to run four Mishra's Bobble just for kind of the the card draw there. I mean, I don't know if that's an instead, but I might think about slotting in a few Surgical Extraction in a deck like this. Yeah. Even though, I mean, I don't think it's necessary by any means. It's definitely running Bobble to make Tarmogoyf bigger, though. Don't forget that. Yeah, I think your life total is going to be pretty low when you have 12 main deck fetches, 
along with five Phyrexian mana spells, along with four Thoughtseize. Well, dismember, you have to have something to target. Yeah. So just target your own Death Shadow. <laughs> yeah, live a little. Ouch. It only gets minus one, minus one. <laughs> That's a good point. That's a very good point. Yeah, I think that this sort of deck just does not have room to play around with things that are not hitting your opponent in the face with creatures or pumping up creatures so they hit an opponent in the face. So while a card like Extraction is good and has applications, it's not getting that extra few points of damage in. Or most of the time it's not, at least. Yeah. I mean, look at me. I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here suggesting running main deck Surgical Extraction, so something's clearly off the rails. What happened to you? Where's the man I once knew? You know what I really like in this deck? The Singleton Sideboard Claim to Fame, which is a card that wasn't good enough for Grixis Death Shadow, but when most of your creatures are one or two mana, I mean, they're all one mana except for Tarmogoyf, and I don't think Street Wraith technically counts as a creature spell. Right. Mm-mm. Claim to Fame seems pretty good. Absolutely. I've been blown out by it. this deck. I, I'm so impressed by this deck because I've lost to it on Magic Online so frequently, and maybe that's me being... I don't know, reverse results oriented or whatever you want to call it. But uh, this deck has beaten me down time and time again. And I think it's just the real deal. Yeah, maybe we should talk about how to beat it in the future. Because it it probably is going to blow out a lot of people who are not prepared. What deck do you think you board in claim fame against? I'm just curious what situation would lead you to, to do that. Maybe against the rock because they can't exile it. I mean, do you think it is just a card advantage? play basically in a deck that has a hard time getting two for ones they it's that's what this is yeah i think this deck can run out of steam a little quick and you just need to go so very fast all the time and this can help you get in for those last little points or just finish out a game that you were close to finishing but wouldn't otherwise it's kind of flexible too like yeah. let's say you're, you're really low at life you can get that death shadow back let's say you your timer goif could be like a five six or something like that you can get your five power goif back it's not amazing by any means but it does have its application yeah. All right. Just curious. It's almost a modal spell. I mean, you're, yeah, you're picking both modes, let's be honest, but you really want to. But one mana to put a creature on the battlefield, I think that's a big play. We don't see a lot of those effects in modern. Not at that mana cost either, no. Usually you have to cast three spells first. <laughs> Here you only cast one spell. Yeah, it's pretty wild that this deck is continually showing up in, you know, the winning part of the metagame, and no one talks about it ever. Yeah. Well, we are. Be the change you wish to see in the world. Time to go fast. Let's yeah. just let's get some ManaTraders.com credits and roll this thing out. Oh, God. This looks pretty expensive for ManaTraders. I don't, I don't know if you can afford it. No. Don't shame me. Well, the, re- the reason that we, we might not be able to afford it anymore, by the way, is that Mishra's Bobble is a $30 card online right Ooh. now. Ugh. Weirdly. Oh, boy. That's so annoying. The king hath returned. Yeah, exactly. The, the prince that was promised was Mishra's Bobble all along. That's so annoying when Ugin is less than a dollar and then Mishra's Bobble, which is an uncommon, is 30 bucks. That means something ain't right. Well, Ugin is two cents, so. <laughs> exactly. That's what I said. Less than a dollar. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. My apologies. I shouldn't have uh, stepped up like that. Apology accepted. So to close it all out, we have another shadow in Grix's Death Shadow, piloted by Noah Strassler. This build is running some interesting, maybe at this point, stock tech with Jace Varin's Prodigy, also known as Baby Jace. Yeah, we saw that at the Magic Fest Calgary, and the pilot of that deck was saying that he's replacing Faithless Looting. It seems like a great way to just start churning through your deck, and then if you're lucky enough to flip a Jace, which in GDS seems reasonably easy because of how quickly you fill up your graveyard, 
get some extra what is that buyback flashback on jvp rebound <laughs> seems kind of cool i mean jace's jace vrin's prodigy is definitely on that list of cards that were yes. super powerful and standard and people have been waiting for them to be good and modern so you know it's nice to see it make the main deck of something i think that um Greatest Death Shadow is an awesome deck that just continues to evolve. Jace is one of those cards that if they don't answer it, you are going to just have so much value that's going to be unreal. And with a deck like that, where you have a lot of must-answer threats, uh, a Fatal Push or a Path they use on Jace is one they're not using on Gurmag or Death Shadow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's some value to eating a removal spell when it's not one of the threats in your you know relatively threat-light deck. Yeah, Absolutely. So that closes up the top eight. We're just going to run through the other decks in the top 16 and not give too much comment on them. So in ninth, we have a Mono Green Tron deck. Tenth, another Is It Phoenix. Eleventh, Green Black Rock. So hey. Twelfth, Dredge. Thirteenth, Infect. Fourteenth, another Is It Phoenix. Fifteenth, Humans. And sixteenth, the third Amulet Titan. Played by Jonathan Rossum. Jeskai Control. Aficionado. Aficionado. Wound the kid. Can I, the one thing I was going to say about this, this nine through 16 is this, the 14th place deck that was, uh, blue red Phoenix is Caleb Shearer on Phoenix. Yeah. When was the last time he didn't play storm? I mean, it definitely, I don't, I don't know for sure, but it's certainly been months and months and months of him mostly playing storm and modern. And so I think exactly what Shane said a moment ago, that tells us all we probably need to know about how good people think blue red Phoenix is. So I think that Storm has a pretty bad Is It matchup and that Is It can be faster and just has some pretty good answers overall. So I think that if you were expecting a field that had quite a bit of Is It Phoenix, I would probably leave my Storm deck at home, even if you were a good pilot with it. Hot take, Is It Phoenix is just the better Storm deck as it uses a lot of the exact same cards and that's mana base. That's probably true. Yeah, that's that's what I was thinking from this too, is that I know that uh, Caleb had been tweeting, he's been tweeting about playing the Legacy deck, the Legacy <laughs> Storm deck that plays <laughs> Phoenix as well. I don't know if you guys have seen that. We'll, we'll have that have on, our, on our Legacy podcast later this week. But uh, something to keep in mind. I did just look at Jonathan Rossum's resume on MTG Goldfish, and it seems that he's been playing Amulet Titan since January. So goodbye, Jeskai Control, Yellow Brick Road. Yeah. The syllables really lined up pretty well with that, actually. <laughs> yeah, so the SCG Open in Cleveland was pretty good. We saw some a few new decks. Well, not new decks. We saw a few unusual decks come to the top eight. And the MTGO Modern Challenge was kind of more the same. So in first place, we had Spencer the Omniscient, which is a really good quality to have if you're a Magic the Gathering player, I think. Um, on Mono Red Phoenix, defeats Hachak on Is It Phoenix in the finals. Um, then we have Misplaced Ginger, who's Derek from the First Strike podcast, so shout out to him and their quality pod. Um, he also lost to Spencer in the semis, finishes third. Also losing in the semis was Kyle Mack on Jund. Um, the rest of the top eight included two humans decks, a blue-white control deck, but the unusual spicy meatball here was uh, Eight Whack, or Goblins, finishing in sixth place. Any thoughts on that, you guys? If you can go very fast, you're going to get rewarded for it. And 8-Whack is one of those decks where sometimes you get to play your whole hand, and then sometimes you play one drops in a row and lose the game. So I think it's a little inconsistent, but it is fast, and it will get you there. Yeah, I think the same is true of Mono Red Phoenix. And if you recall, when I was on Mono Red Phoenix, I used to 
claim that I had a good Is It Phoenix matchup, so maybe I'm a little bit vindicated. Just a bit. Yeah, so this this one round of magic vindicates you, Stan. Good work. That's all it takes. Um, <laughs> that's all it takes. Uh, outside of the top eight, we saw some of the usual suspects. Grixis, Death Shadow, Humans, Devoted Company, Hardened Scales, Is It Phoenix, and perhaps most interestingly, there was a Blue Tron deck in like 10th or 11th place. I don't know if you can say Blue Tron is most interesting anymore. It's been posting results for a super long time and is a super consistent deck. We'll have to do a dive down on it soon. Our last Tron was devoted to Mono Green, but I, I think it's the real deal. I think people are just sleeping on this deck and have been for a long time. Yeah, so Zach and I were at the LGS the other day. I lost to Mono Blue Tron while I was on Is It Phoenix, and you made a really good point that it's probably good against Is It Phoenix because how well they're able to slow down that deck strategy and then just take over the game once they have Mindslaver or Worm Coil or any of their other payoffs. No, yeah, exactly. And I think Remand is a card that is just very good right now. Being able to Remand uh, a thing in the ice on turn two is a very powerful play, and then just digging deeper and having all the answers that Bluetron does, I think it's very well positioned. And I think maybe now is the time people will pay attention, but I don't know. It's been lurking on the fringes for what feels like four, five, six years at this point. I think there's just a, also a devoted Magic Online community to playing yeah. Mono Bluetron and playing it in these high-level events, and they're just very, very good, too. So, Yeah, I, I will say without a doubt, Mono Bluetron is the hardest deck I've ever played. And every time I play with it, I feel like... I've missed something, there's a weird interaction, I'll sometimes jam games in between rounds at my LGS, and I feel like I'll be doing fine, and someone will ask, hey, you missed Lethal Church like two turns ago, or hey, why didn't you do this, and it's because I never had thought to make that move, and I feel like there's so many things in that deck where it's, there's not like, do you do A, B, or C, it's do you do A, then do B and C, do you do C, then do B1, B2, there's so many micro decisions in the deck, and there's so many decision trees that it's so hard to play, that it could be daunting for a new player and because it's that hard to play you don't see results right away and it seems like it might not be that good but it does take that sort of level of mastery and enfranchisement with the deck to really get results more so than other decks i believe all right guys this was a super fun breakdown we went into even more detail than i kind of anticipated but broke it down and shipped it out for your consumption wow this is going to be a sing-songy pod i can tell already we're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we will talk about the cards that don't see play in Modern, but maybe they should. Stay with us. So this week in the Dive Down, we're chatting about powerful cards that don't currently see play in Modern. We've all been there, right? We see a card during spoiler season, or just sifting through old decks and sets and we go this seems powerful what gives and then if you're like me you start thinking about the shell it belongs in realize you'd need to spend a few hundred bucks to make it work and then eventually give up and leave it to someone else to figure it out yeah and the, the reason that we're talking about this today too is you know there's a lot of people right now who are talking about spoilers from war of the spark to um you know to start getting you know, because it's the new stuff, it's interesting. And I think that we kind of want to wait until we see the full set, especially when it comes to the context of modern itself. So we thought it would be interesting to kind of bring up some of the cards that we have on our radar to look to pair with new spoilers every time a new set comes out. So these are the types of cards that we're thinking about trying to bring back into modern to work well with spoilers that come out as we review them before a new set. Mm-hmm. 
with some exceptions you know maybe the cards we discuss we find aren't good for modern in which case we'll evaluate why and then the other thing that kind of inspired this was also, you know, Zach mentioned earlier that Esper Charm was a card that always felt like it was pretty powerful and seeing it in Zach Allen's deck in second at uh, SCG Cleveland kind of reminded us that there's this whole class of cards that are sort of like one step away, maybe they're one tweak away or one kind of iteration of a deck away from from having some real results. And this kind of felt like a similar kind of group of cards that we could look to for inspiration as well. Yeah, modern for all the cards that are in the format, I think actually sometimes stymies people's creativity because they don't want to experiment necessarily with new cards and they want to run the decks that are being successful. And I think sometimes that just stops people from testing with some cards that are just on the fringes. So I think just continually looking at those and thinking about those is going to reward people who then create, you know, the next Grixis Death Shadow, the next uh, Amulet Bloom, something like that. So today we've each picked a card and we're going to go around the table, share our picks, evaluate the reasons why the card might not have made into the format, as well as talk about why we think it's potentially viable. And the goal for this episode is to equip you with some new card evaluation heuristics so you don't accidentally waste $200 on a mana base you never end up using. But do you really ever waste money on real estate? I, I, yeah, I play mono red, and I have so many fetches that are just sitting there, Shane. They're sitting there and collecting value. <laughs> That's great. Buy, buy list those and turn them into a great trip somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I took my girlfriend to Hawaii, thanks to Bloodstained Mire. <laughs> <laughs> yes. When we selected our cards for this segment, we primarily try to adhere to one rule, which is look at cards that don't appear in modern decks right now. It's really hard to to pick out cards that literally have never appeared in a deck in modern. And so most of the many of the cards that we have on this list have appeared in 5.0 lists here and there and maybe even a 5.0 competitive list here and there, but they're definitely not cards that you see commonly or or decks that you see commonly. So we're not trying to iterate, we're just trying to point out some things that might bring totally newish archetypes to the table with the right tools. Yeah, the whole thing is they're on the cusp of playability, which means they've seen testing here and there. They're not dark horse candidates. Yeah. Yeah. So Stan, I think you have a pretty spicy card here as your pick. So I'll be uh, I'll be interested to see where you go with your thoughts. Yeah, so my pick is Lupine Prototype. I think that's how it's pronounced. Maybe it's Lupine. It costs Yeah, Lupine. What are you some kind are you some kind of werewolf doctor now, Shane? <laughs> yep. <laughs> doctor Werewolf over here. So, Lupine Prototype, two generic mana for an artifact creature. It is a 5-5, originally printed in... That's good rate. (laughs) Originally printed in Eldritch Moon. And it says, Lupine Prototype can't attack or block unless a player has no cards in hand. Stan, I love this pick. This is one of the few cards, like, when I was pre-ordering cards back in the day, I was like, I need to have a playset of this. It seems too good not to see play. Yeah, so I want to talk about why it seems good. Two mana, 5-5. Five, five. In some games, that's bigger or as big as a Tarmogoyf. Likewise, the card's built-in drawback, which is it can't attack or block unless a player has no cards in hand, it's in line with the play pattern of a lot of decks in Modern. So the two biggest ones that jump out to me are Affinity and Burn. Um, I don't know about you guys, but after playing countless games against both of these decks, I've lost count of how many times those matchups end in top deck wars even eight racks seems like a strategy that can utilize this tool as their goal is predicated on keeping the opponent's empty hand 
Uh, Hollow One is another one that comes to mind where you end a lot of games with almost no cards in hand, maybe one. The real original like concept of this was I would just go potentially right into Affinity because you dump your hand and you just have this big two-mana beater that has essentially no drawback for you. Yeah, and part of me doubts that the sole issue is that brewers and players overlook this card. I just don't think that's the case. Um, and I've always felt that Modern is a format where the cream rises to the top. And although maybe, just maybe, there's this mythical untapped strategy that can be used to be a tier one, and we just haven't found it yet. Uh, at the rate that people share information online and even in local communities, it's hard to imagine a scenario where no one has tested a card that's just come out a few years ago. So before I open the floor to my co-hosts' reactions, I have a couple thoughts on why the card isn't seeing play currently, with the assumption that it has been tested, but doesn't make the cut. First, and I think this is one of the most important takes, is that there is cheap, versatile artifact removal all over modern. Full stop, artifact hate is practically in everyone's deck in some shape or form. Main deck in a lot of decks, too. Absolutely. And I think that's a big deal for an artifact to be impactful despite the amount of hate cards present in the format. It needs to both synergize with your deck without losing you the game if and when it is removed. So one of the cool things about Lupine is that it's not affected by Stony Silence, which is a very common hate card decks with white used to deal with artifacts. But anything with a braid, nature's claim, even fatal push basically has no trouble getting rid of this. What you're saying, Stan, makes really good sense, right? Is because not only is it impacted by creature removal, it's also impacted by artifact removal. And it has a drawback. This essentially leads me into the main reason why I don't think this card is good enough right now, or at least with the card pool we have available to us in Modern. And that's that there's just better alternatives. And one of the lessons I want to get into with my pick is that the next time you encounter a card that you think is good enough and you can't fully understand why it's not popular is uh, one of the things that you can consider is maybe there's just better options at your disposal already. So in Lupine's case, considering how much hate is out there, a tool that maximizes your empty hand already exists. And in my mind, that's Hazaret. So I'm not going to go into a ton of detail on Hazaret, but I do want to read this card just in case someone's not super familiar with it, since it does appear in Modern, but I don't think it's quite a format staple yet. Hazaret mm. is three and a red for a legendary creature god with indestructible and haste. Hazaret can't attack or block unless you have one or fewer cards. With the added ability of two and a red, discard a card. Hazaret deals two damage to each opponent. So looking at these cards side by side, the first thing you note is that Hazaret is harder to cast at four mana, including red. And one of the interesting details about Lupine is how versatile it is. Any deck can cast it for just two generic mana. But many of the drawbacks that Lupine present are made up for with Hazaret. So not only is it harder to kill by being indestructible and not being an artifact, it's also more flexible since it has the added utility. In some scenarios, Hazaret is just hitting for 7 damage by itself, and unless you're spending pump spells or comboing with other cards, Lupine is only ever swinging for 5. And I think this leaves the question, why would anyone play Lupine when you have a somewhat similar, if not strictly better, alternative at your disposal? I mean, it costs red. You have to play a red deck. No, no, I'm sorry. You get to play a red deck. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, it requires red. Well, red isn't that hard to produce since one of the decks that plays Hazard occasionally is Affinity. Sure. You know, which can produce mana of any color. Yeah, because Affinity ends up with no card in hand. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Sometimes your opponent gets rid of all your artifacts, and then this is like the top deck of the century. Okay. Because Stan makes a really good point when you're looking at a card. Is there already a card that's just kind of better? And like the thought is, do you want to run them side by side, or is this card just not going to be good enough? Yeah. So I, I think that's a, a issue, like a problem that a lot of not newer players, but maybe less enfranchised or maybe less aware players have, where it's this card's so good it does this. Yeah, but there's a version that's better than that and doesn't see play. So why is this going to see play? And like it's not. Yeah, one of the ways I want to evaluate Lupine is through the lens of eight rack specifically because that almost seems like the perfect deck for it, right? Worth noting here, I've never actually piloted a rack. I <laughs> I have played against it, and its strategy isn't particularly difficult to understand. But there are probably nuances in its play pattern I may not be totally familiar with. But, you know, just looking at the deck, you can infer a lot. So, for instance, uh, you can infer that the 8-rack deck has a strategy where it has no cards in hand since it runs Ensnaring Bridge. And to me, Ensnaring Bridge alone suggests 8-rack wants to get to zero cards in hand lock the opponent out of attack, and then punish them for having no cards in hand themselves using either the titular rack or shrieking affliction, a one-man enchantment that drains an opponent when they have one or fewer cards. So now, if this deck that can get you down to zero cards while also reaching no cards in hand, in other words, easily setting up Lupine to attack, why doesn't the deck run it? And I think ultimately it just doesn't need to. And in this case, Lupine is a perfect example of a win more. Yeah, the real question you have to ask is, what does it replace, right? Frequently, when people are critiquing decks or suggesting something for a deck, they're just saying, add this, right? But they're not necessarily looking and saying, what would that player or what would I remove if I were to add this? And so, like you said, Stan, what is Rec going to remove to slot in this card? Yeah, I think this really speaks to another level of card evaluation, another level of being enfranchised in the game. Because it's very easy, like you said, to see a new card come out and go, that's awesome, that goes in Jund, that goes in Merfolk, whatever. But the next level is, sure, it could go in there, but look at this tight list, it's clearly getting results. What of this comes out? And I think that level of evaluation is much harder and takes a lot more of an introspective look. Yeah, when I first saw this card and tried to evaluate it, I basically had the thought, once my opponent has no cards in hand, I'll just start swinging. But I think the really important follow-up question here is, why do I even need to attack if my opponent isn't doing anything anyway? And I think that's the important level, too, that people need to consider when they look at new cards. Not just, can a deck run it, but also, should a deck run it? So, if you're 8-rack, you need to get rid of your opponent's hand, drain them with your racks or afflictions, and then essentially swing with Mutavaults, which is how the deck is set up now. If you're worried about creatures on the board, you know what's better than a conditional blocker? cheap removal, and board wipes. So if you're Affinity or Burn, you can run Hazard instead and get the added utility of a hard to kill creature. 8-Rack, however, uses Fatal Push, Bantu's Last Reckoning, maybe at this point even Cast Down to deal with some of the creatures on the board instead of having to hold up a blocker to deal with them. So the story with me and Lupine is I went from thinking, this card is awesome, why don't more decks run it, all the way to, oh, I don't think this card is very good. It might even just be a trap and take up slots from more consistent tools. Shane, you mentioned that you bought a playset yourself. What happened when you got that card and did you try brewing with it or have different results than I did? Oh, no. Like I said, I think the 
when this card was spoiled, people immediately thought that it would just be an affinity or that it had a possibility to be in modern affinity and it never really took hold. And so they just lost a few bucks in my binder. The end. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't an expensive presale at all at the time I remember. No. And that was when you were playing affinity in modern. Was it really? Yeah. So what was that okay. like three years ago? I don't even Probably. remember. That was like my second modern deck, I think. Yeah. What a dude, where's my car moment. <laughs> yeah, so it never really materialized, I don't think. Yeah, but it's easy to understand why you may, and like the hive mind may have thought that, right? Two mana, five, five, when you or, you or your opponent have no cards in hand, that just seems like a very simple condition to deploy or count on in modern, especially. Mm-hmm. And maybe yeah. it'll work in the future. I don't know. That I, I think this is a card that on paper, just pound for pound, has really good stats and it's a good rate and it's akin to other cards we see in modern for two mana. I mean, Tarmogoyf especially comes to mind. But it's also not that hard to believe why it's not seeing modern playing right now either. So if I were to leave you with any bit of wisdom, look at your alternatives. As Shane pointed out, consider what you may need to replace to make room for this card. And if no one is running it, instead of assuming that maybe they're wrong, maybe start to ask yourself why that's the case. Well, you, that was a that was a really thorough and accomplished dragging of Lupine <laughs> Prototype somewhere. somewhere. Throw the it in the gutter. Lupine Throw Prototype is sitting gutter. somewhere going, listen to this podcast going, what did I do? <laughs> I've just been sitting in Shane's binder for three years. I can neither attack nor block. Yeah, I can <laughs> cannot attack or defend myself right now from this verbal <laughs> assault. Enough about Lupine. He was a good boy before he was turned into a zombie robot. And maybe he'll be a good boy once again. Woof woof. I'm gonna probably talk about like the poster child of cards when it, when this topic gets brought up, which is Monastery Mentor. So Monastery Mentor is from Fate Reforged, which was like, what, January 15? And it's two and a white for a 2-2 creature with prowess. So whenever you cast a non-creature spell, it gets plus one, plus one. But more importantly, you also create a 1-1 monk token with prowess as well. So, uh, fun fact for y'all, this is the uh, the cornerstone of the very first modern deck I ever built, which was Esper Mentor. Which wasn't a real deck, by the way. And I also tried to talk you about building it. it. It's real in that it was full of modern legal cards. Correct. Yes, there were 75 modern legal cards. But you also you might remember that Esper Mentor did have some popularity in like the Japanese metagame. Mm. And it did win some tournaments there, or at least place in tournaments there. But their meta is a little bit different than ours. But anyway, this deck relied on like hand disruption spells, cheap cantrips, including Gitaxian Probe, of course, when it was legal. It had removal like Path to Exile, Murderous Cut, Slaughter Pact. Uh, had some Lingering Souls to let you buy some time to like establish your mentor and flashback Lingering Souls while you're pumping out these prowess tokens that would go wide and allow you to finish the game that way. You know, there was some Snapcasters in there. I think there was like one or two Tassiker for Delving. Uh, Creeping Tar Pit for some beats. Soren Solemn Visitor, I think, provided some additional power and life gain to not really fall behind more aggressive opponents. You know what it sounds like to me? Mm. Mardu Pyromancer is what the deck yeah, sounds like. It also sounds like, like a standard deck that someone ported right over to Modern. That too. <laughs> so, 
and there were some additional ways people were experiencing with Mentor, um, a little bit more controlling strategies, adding some more counter magic, uh, like Mana Lee, Cryptic Command, uh, Spell Snare, um, Creature Lands like Celestial Colonnade to provide some additional finishing power. So did you guys ever play with or against any decks with Monastery Mentor? I did. Yeah, you played like that that uh, that prowess deck, right? I went to a uh, SCG regionals a few years ago, where the night before I decided to just make my own deck and take it with me, which was a terrible idea because I was yeah. in an awkward, it was in an awkward time where um, first off it was the Eldrazi winter, <laughs> Brewer's delight. Blue was not good, and I basically only had blue and red cards. Splinter Twin had just been banned. I was planning on playing Grix's Twin at the regional event and had to come up with something else. And I was just kicking around what to do. And so I just put together a deck that was four snapcaster mages four um, four uh, young pyromancers, uh, two monastery, yeah, monastery mentors, and yeah. And four monastery swift spears, Gitaxium, and then all the one and two spells, mana CMC spells that I could put together that either cantripped or um, were lightning bolts basically. And I showed up, and I played it, and I did terrible. <laughs> and then I decided that I was never going to brew anything on my own again. Probably for the best. Probably for the best. I don't have I don't have the time. Yeah, I don't think we have the brewer's spirit in us, you and I, Dave. At least no, I'm much more of a I I much more enjoy being kind of a technician. Really, sure. yeah, you get your edge through gameplay. Try, trying to be a technician. Let's be clear. And I'm, I'm, and twenty I'm, years of experience. I'm a joke, but. <laughs> I'm currently in trade school to become a technician. Yeah, so really, Mentor has never been a player in modern in any real way. Even with the high power ceiling, maybe the floor is just too low for three mana. Even in the days with like the free spell of Gitaxian Probe to try to create some instant value the turn it was played. But you know, Mentor clearly has the chops, right? It had to be restricted in vintage due to the power level there. I mean, that's mainly because of all of the free and cheap spells in the format. But it still see plays in legacy decks like Miracles, where it's a two of. And so clearly there has to be some power potential here with this card, right? Yeah, I, I enjoy also that the, the the cheap spells you mentioned in vintage are the power nine. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Just, you know, all these cheap spells, Mox Opal, Black Lotus. I mean, that is why it's good, though, because it makes a token when you play a Mox. Yeah, yeah. Turn one, Black Lotus, crack it, play this, play two Moxes, time walk. Yeah, we're good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, I mean, the only deck in Modern that really seems to have some Monastery Mentor in it right now is, like, the Cheerios or, like, SRAMOs, the combo deck that uses Pure Steel Paladin or SRAM Senior Edificer with, like, a pile of zero mana equipment that draws you through the deck off of the ability, the triggered ability of Pure Steel Paladin or SRAM. And then it mass bounces them with retract, which then allows you to recast your mox opals and all the equipment again to repeat the process. And then you finish the game with a big old grape shot. So what they do with Mentor is it serves as this, this additional sideboard win con to flood the board off of casting all the Cheerios. So it's not really exactly this glorious position in the metagame right now, right? It's in the sideboard of a pretty fringy deck, but it, you know, it's something. Yeah, a deck that in another episode we might talk about being one or two cards away from being decent. It's it's not, I don't think it's that bad. I mean, like, like I don't really know, but it definitely seems like a deck with a game plan that can execute it pretty quickly. Yeah, it just, it's, I think the phrase uses glass cannon for a deck like this, and that it's very powerful and consistent, but any amount of hate will just shut it down. Like, if you board wipe against this deck, it's, uh-oh, that's bad, I lose now. 
Well, also you have the problem that if your opponent removes one of your SRAM and you can never have more than one on the battlefield, or if they get rid of your pure steel paladin, both of them are within bolt range, not to mention fatal push. Not to mention path to exile. Not to mention every other removal spell, except I guess cast down. <laughs> Murderous cut. Reeve soul. It's a weird this is a side note here, but it's we've had a lot of discussions recently where I think we are seeing the value of a powerful deck that might be a half turn slower, but gets a lot of gets a lot more consistency. And we're seeing decks like that become more cemented in the metagame, while more of the fringy decks that lack the consistency seem to be being pushed further and further out of the, the main tournament meta. I, I don't know. I would have compared a deck like this to the zombie hunt deck, where you're using zombie infestation and treasure hunt in that they're both they're consistent in that they're most likely going to be able to do what they want to do, but just a lot of decks have answers to it, and there are easy ways to shut it off. So I, I think that it's a good deck, and I, I do agree. I think this is one or two pieces away from all of a sudden appearing in 5-0 list, and we have to do a dive down on it one day. But I, I think it's in that category where it when it goes off, it's, oh my goodness, did you just untap with 40 zombies, I lose. But also on the same note, on my turn, I play Anger of the Gods, and you go, okay, GG. Yeah. Yeah. So if Mentor always had people's eyes on it, it's always talked about as being modern playable, but just not there. It's all, it continually is tested. Like we saw it as a one of in the main and in the side of this 5 0 Esper War Prison deck uh, with the Thopter Foundry combo in the last 5 0 dump. So why isn't it really able to make a real impact in modern? And the classic argument. And one that you'll hear a lot about creatures like this in general is that it dies to Bolt. And so Bolt costs one, this costs three, that's a huge tempo loss. You got no value after playing your three mana creature onto the board, right? But it's true that most of the creatures played in modern for three mana are either providing an immediate benefit, like a reflector mage or a deputy of detention, or they fit into these recursive strategies like dredge for cards like stinkweed imp or prized amalgam. Um, here's a funny note. Uh, Simeon spirit guide is a three CMC creature. It's never meant to be cast. And it's currently the eighth most popular creature in modern. The world is broken. Uh, I don't know if it's okay. I love this card. I'm running four. this monkey is very close to me. We are family. We are kin. And I feel like he is vastly underrated when coming in for two damage, and it's very good in the control matchup. But what do I know? No, that's fair. I mean, it's fair. It's fair. I have some alpha gray ogres I'd like to sell you if you think that's really true. <laughs> can you exile them for one red mana? No. You can get them oh, graded wow. by uh, Beckett and turn them into, okay, we'll talk into later. I'll, I'll $100 like, dollar bills. <laughs> Yeah, and so and you know and with fatal push is like the other one of the the two other popular one mana removal spells that would require it to be revolted to remove mentor at three cmc so maybe that's actually a benefit but to make a comparison that i thought was interesting is one of the most popular creatures in modern right now if you can believe it is tireless tracker so tracker is quite similar to mentor right it's a three mana two two it doesn't do anything just when it enters the battlefield but if left to her own devices she can quickly generate a ton of value with like the landfall clue generation and then when you crack the clue it can grow her into this really huge threat right it's a three mana three two still dies to bolt still doesn't do anything when it enters the battlefield right so, you know, they're even put into like slightly similar shells 
uh, or at least they were, where they have this black hand disruption, black removal, hopefully leading to a board state where the threat can stick and take over. And even with the Esper Shell, you gain the additional control with some counter spells, some white removal, you're churning through your deck with some blue cantrips. So what gives here? Why is Tireless Tracker seeing success, but Monastery Mentor is not really? And I, I think the primary issue is that black-green strategies that might play tracker have a bunch of threats they're presenting, unlike the Esper decks that really aren't presenting enough threats that are straining the opponent's resources and the removal spells, right? So you get like Tarmogoyf, Dark Confidant, Scavenging Ooze. So by the time your tracker is brought onto the battlefield, you can have time for it to stick around and generate a bunch of value. I, I believe it's disingenuous, and I get the comparison in that they're both powerful three drops, but Tireless Tracker is a better card because it's drawing you cards, and Monastery Mentor is never going to give you a card from the top of your library. And, mm-hmm. I, and that's sort of step one, full stop right there. And I think the additional step is it's... I don't know if this is right. I'm, I'm going to say this, and I'll see if I get admonished for it. I think it's easier to play a land than it is to cast a spell. Yeah, there's your opponent doesn't have the priority to interact with you casting or you playing a land. You can play one and then play a land, and your opponent can't do anything until that trigger from the landfall happens. So you play a tireless tracker; it's still your priority. You can play a land, and they can't kill it before you can play that land. Well, Zach, your your scenario here has you playing tireless tracker on turn four. That's fair. I find myself when I play tireless tracker, I hold it until turn four to get that guaranteed value. I think that's what most people want to play Monastery Mentor as well is, you know, so in the scenario that we're mentioning is like, yeah, you'd want to hold Mentor until turn four, turn five, we could cast a number of spells. Yeah, exactly. So if on turn four, would you rather get a 2-2 and maybe a 1-1 that pumps? Or would you get a 3-2 and for sure get a card that you know you can cash in for a card later, which is the clue token? You're you're getting at the points I wanted to get at here, Zach, which is I'm not saying that Tracker and Mentor are equally powerful and should both be seeing play i think it's good to be kind of getting at these reasons as to one why one can see play and why the other cannot or has not so as interesting and unexpected as this comparison between tireless tracker and monastery mentor is i'm kind of curious what you think about the comparison between monastery mentor and young pyromancer is because Mm -hmm. they seem much closer to the same to the same card and one of them Young Pyromancer is essentially a format staple. It's it's a card that probably comes in and out of top 50 card kind of play on a regular basis. And Monastery Mentor never kind of touches that same that, sure. that same kind of tier. Why, why do you think that is? I think people really gravitate towards the prowess ability of both the creature itself and of the tokens. So the, I think the concept is, is that even though it comes down a turn later, you generate so much more power on the battlefield that it could close out the game much more quickly, right? But I think that the reason that Power Master does see play is that it costs two, right? And so it can come down either a turn earlier, or even when you play it late, you can immediately cast some spells in response to removal and get value of at least having you know one or two tokens left in the battlefield. And that's, I think, a little bit harder to do with a Monastery Mentor. So I think this is true. I think there might be something a little bit different going on here too. And this is a a little bit of a like more unfocused kind of comment. But I think that there is something to be said for Young Pyromancer being a red card and Monastery Mentor being awkward because it is a white card. Yes. And let's talk about let's talk about the reasons why here. Now there's there's some difficulties here because if you look at a deck like um, Mardu Pyromancer. 
it did not require playing a ton, a ton, a ton of cantrips to work, but it still had eight. It has faithless looting and it had man and uh, towards the end it had a few metamorphoses mm. and got mm. all the way up to a full place at at one point in time. We have Ross Merriam on record saying that faithless looting is not a cantrip, though. Yeah, it's it's not, but it's it's a repeatable effect that adds more cards to your hand to let you get more spells so that you could make more more tokens off of it. So it's it's card filtering. It's not really a cantrip, and like I said. Pyromancer never really got up to a full play set of metamorphosis either. But I think there is this awkward thing going on with Monastery Mentor where, you know, in a lot of decks, you want to play Young Pyromancer with Opt and Serum Visions, and then you want to take advantage of Lightning Bolts, right? With Monastery Mentor, it's harder to choose between, well, do I play it in a red-white deck for some reason and lose out on cantrips, or do I play it in a white blue deck and lose out on lightning bolt and then if you push it even farther and go no i want to play cantrips and lightning bolts then all of a sudden you're in jeskai and maybe that's not the right shell yeah. for this type of strategy either yeah dave you are, you and i are thinking along the same wavelength here my friend because i think when you look at a deck when you look at decks that would potentially run monastery mentor i keep just looking back at is it phoenix so decks like that they have demonstrated the value where you can churn through your deck to find your key cards and generating that ancillary value while you're doing so by removing counters from your things in the ice and counting towards recurring your Arclight Phoenixes from the graveyard or triggering your Pyromancer Ascension, right? And so a deck like that is doing all of the things that you want a Monastery Mentor deck to do while doing it with two colors. You know, a thing in the ice at two is providing more immediate value. It doesn't die to the ubiquitous lightning bolt. It can block small creatures for you. And when it flipped, when it, when it, when it flips, it clears the opponent's entire board of creatures and then swings in for seven. Whereas if you did that with like a monastery mentor, you just made four additional tokens without haste that can simply just be wiped out with an anger of the gods or a supreme verdict. Terminus. I think what Dave was exactly alluding to with blue or red is that those have the highest concentration of one mana spells yep so when you're playing these cards you want to play cards that cost one mana and white has one playable of that in path to exile i mean I'll, maybe there's one more mana tie that gets condemn whatever. fine whatever the same card basically. East. yeah east host uh but blue and red have a very high concentration of playable one mana spells exactly so you're pulled in that direction because you want to be playing as many one mana spells as you possibly can you know what's even better than a one-mana spell? Zero-mana spell. Eggs, baby. Dave, what you were mentioning about uh, Young Pyromancer, though, is that it cannot replace Monastery Mentor and all the decks that would play it because Young PZ is only instants and sorceries. Right. Whereas Monastery Mentor is non-creature spells, so that's why it can work in some of these artifact-based decks to generate sort of you know value in that way. Yeah, like the entire vintage format. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't heard of that. I only know of modern. So, guys, I hate to go back to Is It Phoenix, the Is It Phoenix well here, but do you think that, like, Thing in the Ice and Arclight Phoenix are just providing better value than Mentor for one of these low CMC, you know, cycling, cantripy type decks at this point? I don't think I can say with enough emphasis that is obviously definitely the case. Yeah, I was going to say, leading yes. the witness a little bit here. Ah, you're right. Judge, judge sustained there's a reason pyromancer isn't seeing play in is it phoenix anymore because is it phoenix is in my opinion a thing in the ice deck that's just getting added benefit from all the spells they're casting yeah 
Exactly. So you know what sucks when you're got a board full of tokens, sending them all into exile because you've just cast your two mana board wipe that's also yeah. about to swing for seven and do the job for you. Yeah. So I, I almost think that at this point, Monastery Mentor has been more or less eclipsed in power level in modern, at least, before it really ever had a chance to find a home. But I think it's interesting to use it as something like like a Psy Master Thopterus, where it gives these decks an alternate win con of going wide for a deck that's really trying to kill you in some other way. And so it just doesn't have a great home. Like I think, you know, decks like as a Phoenix are capitalizing on the power of ca- casting cheap spells without trying to strain the mana base by trying to fit in a few off color creatures and mentor. Um, but I do like it in that Psy like role of giving decks some different win cons, you know, like for prison and Thopter Foundry type decks. What do you guys think about mentor? Do you think it's just, it's time had, has come and gone or do you think that it's going to have a, a home and maybe in more artifacty type decks? It's time never was. Yeah, I mean, we'll wait and see. There's always something that we should keep our eyes open for. Like like Zach said, are there better cheap white spells that can sort of create reasons to 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 play Mentor eventually? And, you know, just keep your eyes open and uh, cross your fingers for all you Monastery Mentor hopers, hopefuls out there. I think maybe another uncommon one white mana removal spell might push this. We'll see. It has to say draw a card. At the end of it, whatever, whatever it does. I don't think they're going to print a one mana removal spell that also draws a well, card. Well, no, I mean, but. not maybe not a removal spell, but it, it would have to be some stuff that said draw a card. I mean, there are there's a card that adds plus one plus O oh and draws a card already. There's a card that taps a permanent and draws a card already. There would have to be something that was more powerful than that, but less powerful than Path to Exile, right? Hmm. That yeah. made sense for some reason. Gain protection from part from target color, draw a card, which would be an impossible spell, but um, maybe. Yeah, it reminds me of almost the heroic decks from Theros, you know, cards yeah. like that. Yeah, good call. So that's my piece. Um, Dave, you have an, another interesting white card from about the same era, actually, to talk about. Uh, it's from the same set as oh, Monastery yeah. Mentor, in fact. Um, so I'm going to talk about a card today. I'm not going to bring this card up to drag it in front of Dive Down Nation like Stan and, and Shane just did. Here's this card that's really powerful. Guess why it's terrible? <laughs> I also don't have a dissertation prepared about this card, but it is a really cool card with an interesting effect, and it, it, it's unique and modern, and that card is Rally the Ancestors. Yeah. So, in case anybody's forgotten about this Battle for Zendikar-era uh, standard staple, here's what it does. Rally the Ancestors' ca- uh, casting cost is X, white, white. It is an instant, and the card text says... Return each creature with converted mana cost X or less from your graveyard to the battlefield. Exile those creatures at the beginning of your next upkeep. Exile, rally the ancestors. Yeah, the back the backbone of a really powerful standard deck, right? Yeah, I mean it was real. It was completely dominant at different points in time, and it was part of the reason that Jace Vrind's Prodigy was a hundred dollar card at one point in time while it was in standard rotation because it was a linchpin to this deck. So this is a card that was the linchpin of a really dominant standard deck, the four-color rally deck like we were talking about a minute ago. It was basically built around the idea of getting a bunch of creatures into your graveyard, returning a bunch of them to the battlefield with Rally the Ancestors, and then sacrificing them or or using or benefiting from uh, the end of the battlefield triggers that the creatures have. Oh, yeah. So the whole thing was that it was set up around a kill based on sacrificing creatures to Nantuko Husk and triggering Zulaport Cutthroat 
so that you could drain somebody from 10 all the way down to zero. And there was a whole lot of enabling going on in this deck where you could scry through your deck as a result of creatures coming into play. You could draw extra cards as a result of creatures like Elvish Visionary and things like that. And finally, drain people with Zulaport Cutthroat. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that the thing that this card is really all about is it is kind of like you want a plan that has a sack outlet, a blood artist effect, and a dream. And the reason that I think it's kind of interesting in modern is because in standard, we only had a couple of these effects that we could play off of. But in, in modern, we have access to much more. And true to modern's form, oftentimes the CMC of those effects is even lower. So Dave, just for people who aren't familiar, when you say a blood artist effect, basically it's when a creature dies, you the, the opponent loses life and you may gain life, right? Correct. Okay. And the difference between Zulaport Cutthroat and Blood Artist is that Blood Artist is any creature on the battlefield, whether it's your opponent's or your creature dies. Zulaport Cutthroat was only if your creature died. Mm-hmm. So there's kind of different ways that you could get incremental value off of uh, removal, basically, with Blood Artist. But at any rate, that, that's kind of just building a kill based off of redundant effects in modern that kind of helps it become more focused. Mm-hmm. So I think the thing that's interesting about this this is that it is a graveyard creature combo deck that does not rely on the combat step to win. So in the case of your dredges and your living, your living ends, they have to be able to attack with the creatures eventually in order to make it work. Whereas with rally the ancestors, if you do it the right way, they won't have to, won't have to um, actually attack with them. You sort of just churn through your deck, sack things, uh, scry to another rally, the ancestors cast another one and kind of continue on your day. I'm not sure if this is said, but it's important to mention that if you're casting Rally the Ancestors to get creatures, they can't attack. Right. The spell doesn't give anyone haste. It doesn't give anyone haste, and it also doesn't let them stay in play long enough for them to ever reach a combat step on your turn. So you have to do it at instant speed, essentially, in order to make it work, because otherwise they just disappear. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that, for me, this is the type of card where I'm always looking for a certain number of effects to help it become better over time. Because this is a card that, you know, after that standard season, I kept my four four of playset because I was kind of like, I think that this card is probably going to get broken at some point in modern with that trend of printing similar effects over and over again, if that continues. And also that effect of generally having casting costs, converted uh, mana costs of spells go down over time as well. We could get to a point where there's going to be enough single mana cards that do all these different things that you could cast rally for three and have it be effective or even rally for two and have it be effective at this point is very, very good. And that's kind of the general game plan that goes with it. Oh yeah. It makes sense to me. I kept the card as well when I was going through my, my bulk at the time and I was like, yeah, this card definitely has chops. It can definitely see some play one of these days. So Dave, what are you looking for to try to make this deck more of a real thing? So I think for me, the main things that I'm looking for are probably a redundant effect to rally the ancestors would be would be yeah. the kind of a plus version of this. There is the card that is called um, Return to the Ranks that sees some play occasionally, which is a convoke a white convoke card from N fifteen that lets you re- remove a return X number of creatures of converted mana clock 
cost two or less to the battlefield. So that does a little bit of redundancy, but it's much, much more expensive than Rally the Ancestors is. So if there was to be something that was printed that was similar where you could pick a select number of cards and return them from the graveyard to play for a certain amount of time or something like that, that would be good. The second thing that I would be looking for, honestly, is another reliable low-casting cost sack a creature outlet for free. Hmm. So if there was another one of those that would be really amazing we already have um there's the orzov card that is just black white for a 2-2 that lets you sacrifice a creature so i think that we'd need something that was less than two mana to really make uh kind of build out around viscerous here so that you could always reliably be able to get rid of your creatures and bring them back you know the effect that they that that you could even trade that sacrifice for could be very low i just think that it's going to be hard to have that happen because they don't print a lot of cards that let you sack permanence for no cost because it is such an easily abusable mechanic sure and then the last thing i would be looking for are low casting cost cards that have enter the battlefield effects that are very clearly card advantage so the card that was run in standard with this deck a lot of the times was sadisi's faithful which was a card that lets you bounce another creature when it came into play so that's something where if you had to get a threat off the board for some reason you could use that as utility and then it went into it went into your graveyard and you could kind of cycle it back in as one of your blood artist triggers later on if you wanted to there were other other kind of reasons to run that as well but if there were any one or two cmc cards that had good enter the battlefield effects that's another thing that i would be looking at as well i mean for example the the deck in standard ran a playset of elvish visionary so if there was by some manner ever another card that was redundant to elvish visionary in some way i could see that also helping as well so there actually is a card that was recently just printed that is very very good in this deck i i think and also i i was kind of pointed this way sort of at the same time that i was thinking about this i found an article by um eric frolick about a 5-0 list from an MTGO competitive league by a player called Taco Farmer on a rally <laughs> the Anc- an Abzan rally the ancestors deck and that card is a stitcher supplier mm. and so stitcher supplier is the type of card that in a shell like this much in the same way that it works in bridgevine is you get to play it and then you get to sack it and get six cards into your graveyard and then with rally with rally the ancestors you also get to bring it back lose another three cards and then sack it again lose another three cards so that you can kind of get this loop going where you basically get to mill your whole deck so i don't think it's likely that there would be another card in the kind of stitcher supplier zone anytime soon because people haven't quite figured out how to use that yet and it is a really powerful effect but i think everybody thought that citrus supplier was going to break bridgevine i think it's much closer to actually making this deck work eventually than it is to making that deck work i have an interesting question sure so the the deck you described where you're using etbs or sac effects is very interesting i want to propose a different build that might use this card and see if you think that's a viable thing i think that also this build would be a few steps away but i think this is a different direction do you think a deck where you ran a lot of small haste creatures would be viable with this? Especially, we know that black is getting haste more, it's church right in that color, and R&D is putting more haste effects. Do you think a world where you can dump a bunch of haste creatures in the graveyard, get them all back and swing for a bunch, get some death triggers is worth it? I mean, I think if you got to a critical mass of that, for sure, you would need like 16 one or or two mana of them to make it work and you're part way there right you got one you got monastery swift spear yeah i I don't know if there are other ones than that off the top of my head i don't think there are well there's goblin guide and there's monastery swift spear if you wanted to try it for black yeah yeah and then what's in what's the one you're thinking of in black that i'm spacing on 
the the card I was referencing is called Banehound. It is a one black one one lifelink haste. Yeah, that's the yeah. first single black mana haste creature I believe in modern. So yeah, and Wizards has mentioned they're putting more black haste cards out. So what I'm asking is if there's some sort of you know dumping cards into your graveyard and Mardu and maybe bringing them back. Do you think that's a viable strategy? Are we close to that? I mean, in my mind, I think you know. There's a couple other cards, too. There's Fanatical Firebrand, and there's also Bomat Courier that are also one CMC haste cards in red and artifact. I think those are all cards... Well, Fanatical Firebrand is kind of like, eh, I don't know about that one, but definitely sure. Bomat Courier has some stuff that it does. If you're in a deck where you run want to run this one uh, black mana card, I imagine you can also run Fanatical Firebrand and see where it goes. I think you would want a couple of things that have a little bit more power to them if you could, but... I think it, it's definitely possible, depending on what happens in the near future. Um, in my mind, I think that the the one that's built around killing somebody with with Blood Artist and sacrificing and drawing cards off of Elvish Visionary and Stitcher Supplier and things like that is probably more likely to pop first. But um, you know, I'm not a doctor, so you just play one on a magic. <laughs> I've, I've never thought you were. So I'm 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 open to it for sure. So one of the things that I think we're circling around a bit is this fabled modern aristocrats deck that doesn't Mm, exist and everyone always says is on the cusp. And (laughs) if I'm hearing you correctly, this might be an important piece if and when that deck finally has the tools it needs to emerge. Yes, I think that's totally true. And I think Stitcher Supplier is the other one that's a big part of that deck if and when it it, uh, emerges and people have kind of forgotten about that card. I will say... You know, as far as bringing up something that sounds awesome and then talking about how something else is better to stay on, on theme of this uh, <laughs> episode, I do think that if you look at the way that, that the decks that are out there right now, both Dredge and um, Living End are probably more consistent, more easy to use versions of the same idea put a bunch of creatures in your graveyard and then bring them back through some cheaty way. Yeah. But if there's a you know, if there becomes a time where faithless looting becomes banned or something happens where living end is not as good, you know, living end, you do have to wait for the uh, combat step to happen in order to, to do your kill. So maybe if dredge disappears for some reason, then a deck that's this kind of more value based rally, the ancestors vibe could actually work, but I think it's close. Zach, buddy, take us home with the spiciest pick of all, the hot daddy himself. All right. So my card is many of my favorites. It is red. It is a Planeswalker, my favorite card type. It is three mana, my favorite mana cost. <laughs> I'm serious. That's a real thing. I mean, Blood Moon is three mana, so Blood I Moon totally believe Snaring what Bridge, saying. Anger of the, the Gods. Master. Yeah. yeah, Rebel Master and none other than Sarkon Fireblood. That's so a, that's the Sarkon- newest Sarkon, right? That is the newest Sarkon, yeah. So for those who are unaware of this card, it is the following. It is one and two red. It has three abilities and three starting loyalty. It's plus one. You may discard a card. If you do, draw a card. Other ability, also a plus one. Add two mana in any combination of colors. Spend this mana only to cast dragon spells. Oh my gosh. This is, this is yeah. the ultimate Zach card. Be nice to me. I'm, not, I'm trying to do this on my own right now. This is with love. <laughs> the ultimate, minus seven. Create four, five, five red dragon creature tokens with flying. Okay. So when I first saw this card spoiled... It, did you cry? I have never... I If I didn't, I feel like I did. So I don't know if it's apocryphal, but I did cry. You're crying now. So 
From the Zach Apocrypha. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> some, yeah. Some hermits out in Egypt wrote about this in their the, caves. The you book of find Sarkin. <laughs> so when I saw this card, it was it was unbelievable to me. I was heavily invested in Scred at the time, and I felt like the deck was sort of falling behind a little bit, or other decks were surpassing it in power, and it needed a little little chutzpah, a little push to it. And I thought that Sarkon was that. So, unfortunately, he never really got there. I've tried him in Scred. I've tried him in Scred Dragons. I've tried him in Mono Red Dragons. And I've tried him in Rakdos Dragons. Only one of which is a viable competitive deck. Is it Scred without Sarkin? That's the viable Yes, that viable is the only viable deck. competitive deck. It's yeah, the Scred build that does not run Sarkon. All right. Yeah, so why, do you, why, do you, why are you drawn to him? Why do you think that he's close? Well, so he's three mana. And that's instantly, you know, we talked about that. That's where it's, oh, like... That's good. Three mana is what you want to pay for a modern for a walker in modern. But his abilities seem really good on the surface, and when I first saw them, I was really drawn to them. But when you really start to analyze them, they're not as good as they appear to be. Yeah, so one of the things that jumps out to me when we consider three mana walkers is I don't see a ton of either card advantage or room for two-for-one-ing your opponents. Exactly. And... When you look at him, you think you're getting card advantage, but his first ability is a rummage. So you have to discard before you draw, and that is really huge. And I often find that the decks that you're playing him in are more mid-range grindy decks where you don't, quite frankly, want to lose a card. And later in the game, if you're on extra lands, you can ditch them, but you do need to hit a critical mass of lands. So you don't just want to go discarding lands to Sarkon. In a deck that runs him, you're running high-costed dragons usually. So you don't want to discard a land, draw a five drop, and then have no way to cast it if Sarkon dies. Right? That's that's sort of how it is. And then I think what also a big issue with his first plus ability, the one that discards, is decks that have discard payoffs, it's, he's too slow and it's only one card. Mm-hmm. So if you're trying to do something like Fiery Temper a person, you need to wait until turn four to do that. And that there are other decks that do that faster and better. Sure. What about the second ability with adding mana and a combination of colors to cast dragons? Are there just not a critical mass of cheap enough dragons? Or how would you want to play that? Or maybe they're not resilient enough? Yeah, it's really both those things. So adding two mana is good. And that ability is when, when you get that one off and when he's working, that's the one that feels the best and most powerful. But when you really look at the dragons that are conceivably playable in modern, there's maybe five tops. And with red. Exactly. And with, well, he can add in, in any color. And there are people that do splash black or green occasionally. And he is in standard. He's making blue for of Mizzet, as I understand it. Yeah. I'm going Sarkon into Ojitai. Just, <laughs> just try to stop me. Very rogue. Oh, man. Dave, if, if you do, I don't. Man. Oof. For the play, for the best playable dragons, you have Glorybringer, Stormbath Dragon, and Thunder Ma Hellkite. And those are all perfectly playable. We see them as finishers in multiple red decks, but they all cost five mana. And if Sarkon's coming down on turn three, you're getting them down on turn four at the earliest. And there are other better ways to do that if you're trying to accelerate dragons into play. Yeah. So you play this card. You On the first turn, you plus him in, either do nothing most of the time, or maybe discard a card if you're heavy on too many lands. And then if you're plusing him to play one of these dragons on turn four... That's kind of best case scenario, and best case scenario doing what other cards also do is not where you want to be. Yeah, what about yeah, Thunderbreak yeah. Regent? That seems like it might be playable in modern. So that is, a, I have quite a bit of experience with that card, and I tried so hard to make it work. I tried so hard. 
In the end, it did not even remotely matter. <laughs> so Thunderbreak Regent seems like a very good card in the surface, and it seems like a good card to combo into Sarkon with. So ideally, what, turn three Sarkon, you plus and play this card on turn four. And what the card we're talking about is Thunderbreak Regent. It is two and two red for a 4-4 four, four flyer. Whenever the opponent targets it or another dragon with a spell, they get bolted. Right. So this card, once again, seems very good. Seems like it's almost there. But Sarkon isn't accelerating it out. Because you're playing it, if Sarkon's on turn three, this card's still on turn four. So maybe you can plus mana play this and do something else. But most of the time, it just feels a little clunky. And I find that they will just remove it and take three damage. And this deck doesn't have the ability to get in the incremental damage. So you'll get the three six damage in, and then they'll just win at five life. And you feel like, well, they didn't care about that. Yeah. It's so awkward, like the ability when you really look at it, that they did their best to push it, but without um, without a two-drop dragon that you yeah, can exactly. immediately drop into play or some kind of tribal card that counts as a dragon. It, it seems very good on the surface, and if you can, if you, the I guess the dream is you are able to Simeon Spirit guide it out on turn two and then have a turn three five-drop. That's very powerful and will actually win a lot of games, but that, you can't consistently do that. And like, like we said... When you play him, the initial plus of his abilities, there's not a lot of good choices because there's not that ability. Like, there's no dragon egg that costs two. There's no two two dragon with fire breathing. Like, there's no filtration. There's nothing. So when he finally gets going, you feel like you are just sort of playing a normal game of magic. I have to ask Zach, what are you looking for to make Sarkin playable? Then, if the idea that is that he, you think he's on the bubble, what do you think he's going to get played in eventually? I think that he really has to be played in a deck that has some sort of dragon tribal. So it, we need dragon tribal. That's sort of what it is to a degree. But to compound on that, we need a pushed low cost dragon. Mm. So we need something. I don't think two mana is possible because of they want them to be big splashy creatures. But we saw that uh, that angel in M nineteen that was very good. That you know was a three three flyer for three and had this activated ability. So we need a similarly low-costed dragon that is a, a pushed mythic that maybe is three red for a three-three flying and it has you know a fire breathing or a pinging ability or it, it's, it's something like that. You need a low-costed push creature where you can play Sarkon and on your next turn plus play that and have another play. So you need to not have so many huge you know giant dragon mana sinks, but have lower-costed dragons that you can have sort of a more tempo-based play. Yeah, so you don't you don't think Sarkon's whelp is getting there? No, I don't think Sarkon's Whelp is getting there. I tried it. I Believe me, I really and truly did. I pushed it as hard as I could, and the wheels did not go. This is usually a bad way to evaluate walkers, and it's even worse here going by the ultimate. So we talked about those first two abilities, and they're so close but not quite. And his ultimate is minus seven, so you need him to stick for four turns before you can get this off and then activate it. And when it happens, it is so very cool. I've done it exactly once, and you win the game. But... He is never getting there most of the time. Best case scenario, he's powering something out and then dying, or it's just it's never ever happening. And it's 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 very cool and it feels very EDHy when it happens, very commandery. But it's not a realistic plan and it'll never happen. It's just too far away. Maybe if he ulted at six, it'd be more playable. I I don't know, but it it just it's so far away. You sound sad when you say that. I feel I feel bad. But, but yeah, I mean, I, I just wanted this card to be good. I really, it seemed like, once again, three mana, 
It has what appears to be card filtration. It has what appears to be acceleration. You look at it, and initially it seems like, hey, this is what we needed. This is the Red Liliana. But, oh, it is not that thing. Maybe another time. I think all these cards were super, were really interesting to hear everybody talk about. You know, I hope we didn't discourage people too much from looking at cards in the bubble, because I do think that spoiler season is the time to try to reevaluate cards that we think are are powerful and see if they've moved forward into a spot where they can make an impact in modern. So I, as an kind of outro fun bonus question that I have, we've mentioned this card a couple of times and Stan mentioned it as a joke, but I want to ask a quick question about Mox Amber, because in my mind, I don't think that Wizards of the Coast would have printed a Mox that was never going to be good ever. So here's my question. I want a number. I don't want any qualification. How many one mana white legendary creatures will it take for Mox Amber to be playable? Wait. We already have two. Why white? We have, because we already have two in white. We have yeah. Is- Isamaru, yeah. Hound of Kanda, and uh, the flip Gideon, Kithian, yes. How yeah. many more does it take for Mox Amber to be playable? You want one mana? It has to be one mana. Should we do it all in the count of three together? No. I want to hear <laughs> no. each person say how many more white, one mana white legendary creatures it takes for that card to be playable. Oh, man. I mean, is the deck even good with, with one more playset? I don't even know. I, I've prepared an answer. I have an answer as well, and it's good. Then do it. Okay, Zach, you first. I have a compound answer. I think that... I, I think said that, that I wanted a number. <laughs> Right, right, right. So you have a number and a subnumber. Okay. So I think that two gets it there in terms of being FNM viable and being really good. And maybe you fill out the slots. I think you really need three just because the legendary factor makes it hard to run multiple out. So I think you do need 20 cards in your deck. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Shane? Hmm. Yeah, I say maybe, maybe two more. I mean, there's some math to this, I'm sure, somewhere that like Frank Carson has done, but I'm not going to look it up right now. So let's just say let's just say eight, uh, two more play sets of them. Okay. Dark arithmetic. Stan? Zero. I don't think this card will ever get there. Okay. So your answer is actually infinity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No amount of cards. Never ending. No amount of one-mana creatures is going to make the white aggro mono white amber deck work. I am going to say one. Yeah. I think it takes one more legendary white creature at one cmc to make mox amber playable do you think that or are you just picking that because we didn't no i'm i'm i actually think that i think if you had 12 in your deck plus some two drops that were were also legendary you could probably get there maybe perhaps thalia yeah or if you branch out into another color then for red because there's the bell ringer oh so we're and, branching out now. i mean yeah well, Zergo, but wait, I, I'm still sticking to my answer that it has to be white. It has to be an additional white legend. So we'll see. Keep an eye out for that, too, as you see spoilers over the next couple of years. <laughs> yeah, listeners, keep your eyes peeled for a sneak peek. Dave, don't forget about uh, Reese the Redeemed, which is a, a green-white hybrid mana. One that card's not modern creature. playable. You don't bring that energy here. <laughs> so I hope you learned something about card evaluation. If I had to summarize it in a nice, pithy conclusion... I guess you want to look at better alternatives, cards that support a clean mana base, and maybe more dragons. Always more dragons. We're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we are going into the wind down with a very special announcement. Stay with us. Mm-hmm. 
So when we started this podcast, it was always meant to be just a place for me and my friends to talk about our favorite format. And it took a surprisingly short amount of time for us to find some real loyal fans and supporters. And that included old friends and new friends we've made in the process. And one of the questions that we've been getting a lot from these supporters and our friends and fans is how can they support the show? So like many of the podcasts that have inspired us to get into the game, we've decided to finally launch our Patreon. Sweet. We plan to launch this Patreon within the next few weeks, but before we do, we are putting out a listener survey because we want to get your feedback on the rewards that we can offer our supporters and the tiers that various rewards will be offered at. The link to the survey is in the show notes for this episode, and the whole survey really takes about five minutes or less, so it would really help us out a ton if you participated. Even if you can't support Patreon, we will still value your input. There are no bad ideas. In addition to show notes, the survey will be on our Twitter and in our weekly post on the Modern Magic subreddit. So keep an eye out for that. So guys, why are we doing some Patreon here? The reason that we're we're considering doing a Patreon right now is because we want to find a, a, another way to engage with the people who are engaged with us. And having a Patreon is a good way to kind of set up a community around Dive Down specifically. Not We don't exclude anybody, of course, in any way, but we want to be able to have a direct line to the people who have the biggest stake in what the show can be in the future, what we can talk about, and have direct dialogue with each other and with us as part of that whole thing. Yeah, so some of the things that we're thinking about include, you know, uh, Patreon threads where people can ask us questions directly. If we're going to have guests on, we can tell everyone up front and get some questions from people there as well. I think the other thing that it's good for is, you know, we we think that we're building a, a community here that we can have just have some fun with, honestly. And so if you've seen sure. our pins, you know, around Chicago, we've, we've actually made some prototype play mats. And so we we've kind of seeing if there's a way that we can roll those out to more listeners beyond the people that we just see around the the shops and things like that. Um, And even to think about different things that we could do to raise the profile and just have fun with this idea of what it means to be a casual spike um, and how people can display that they're proud of that that's who they are as a member of the magic community. Honestly, we want to also generate some capital for the creation of swag for our listeners. You know, people like the pins. People want stickers. I'm sure people would like some sleeves or deck boxes or play mats. Yeah. I would like some sleeves. And that's what we'd like to know specifically, too, from the yeah, survey exactly. is, is, you know, my maybe I'm kind of alone on an island here among the four of us is that my contention is that we should try to do some stuff that's a little more unique than than uh, <laughs> sleeves and deck boxes. And so I'd love to hear what people have to say on the survey. I'm thinking hats. I'm thinking bandanas. I'm thinking tearaway suits. I'm talking those things Etch- that like scrape I- ice yeah. and snow off car shield windows. Yeah, yeah. Car shield, ice scraper. Car shield. I'm gonna need. I'm gonna need your feedback on the actual survey, then, Dave. Honestly, I think okay. our listeners want us to afford to quit our jobs and make Dive Down Podcast a daily show. I am so close to advancing in the Church of Scientology. I am right there to get to my next Satan level. And I need 20 grand, and this podcast is going to get me to that next level of enlightenment. (laughs) No, so yeah, I think Dave said it best, right? Is that what's really cool about Patreon is it gives us new ways to interact with people who have a stake in the show. So people who want to give us feedback directly, give us ideas directly, and really kind of support the ongoing efforts that we're making to make this podcast awesome. 
Not to mention, potentially have a say in future episodes and help guide the content that we create. Exactly, Stan. So yeah, take some time, uh, click on the survey link. It's going to have like fewer than 10 questions, and it'll really give us an idea of what people in the Dive Down Nation want us to make, what kind of swag you guys want from us, how you want to interact with us, and what the future can hold for us as the Dive Down community. And the survey is mostly multiple choice, right? So you can even treat it like the ACTs, click C on every question, and you might pass oh we don't know i don't encourage please oh god please isn't that what the c and act stood for all c's thanks (laughs) (laughs) all all c's thanks yeah what did you think it stood for (laughs) that would explain you know my interaction with that particularly quizzing body that would explain the 22 that you guys got so yeah, we'll let the survey be open for probably a week or two. Um, we'll put in the show notes for this episode, probably next episode, see how much uh, response we get, and then we can take that all into consideration as we figure out exactly what and how we want to offer it. Yeah, and the goal, ideally, is to launch the Patreon around the same time we put out episode 20. So before the end of April, maybe early May, you might finally get a chance to give us that cold hard cash. Several people around Chicago have been asking me about playmats and how to get one, and this would be the way I think we'd be able to distribute them. So if you're interested in getting a playmat from us, please fill out the survey and let us know that you want one. All right, that wraps up this week's show. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episode as soon as it comes out. And if you use iTunes, please leave us a rating and review. If you'd like to submit a question to the podcast or pick our brain on something in modern, you can tweet us at the dive down, all one word, or email the dive down at gmail.com. If you see us on Reddit, feel free to send us a message there as well. Chatting with our listeners is always one of the best parts of making this podcast, and our weekly Reddit posts have been a great place to keep the conversation going with the whole dive down nation. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. So until next week, get out there and buy Mox Amber! They couldn't have Kinder Eggs here, so they had Wonder Balls instead. It had, like, stickers. Okay, I don't understand, like, that meme that Kinder Eggs are are not allowed in America because a ton of grocery stores in Chicago carry Kinder Eggs. Are you okay? Those aren't those aren't normal Kinder aren't eggs. Real have Kinder you never eggs. had a European Kinder egg, you faker? Like, are you kidding? It's totally different. The toys on the inside in a capsule, and this one, yeah. it's the toy on one side and the thing on the other. The kin- they don't have the, the then those are illegal. Those are super legal, and the FDA could shut them down. Cool, because I've had it a million times where it's a chocolate egg, and you eat the chocolate, and inside there's a plastic capsule with a little toy in it. Like, yeah, that's super illegal in America. Literally countless times I've had those. Super illegal in America. No joke. <laughs>